Father, we thank you for the cross. We pray that you will help us to be open to all that you desire to say to us and to teach us from the cross. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, I heard the story uh, of a man named Larry Walters, 33-year-old man living in Southern California area, who decided that he wanted to see his neighborhood from a higher perspective. He went down to Army Surplus Store and bought 45 used weather balloons. He brought them home, he, he strapped them to a lawn chair, and then strapped himself into the lawn chair. He took along with him a six-pack of beer, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and a BB gun. And he, what he thought, he would just, uh, you know, he'd have his friends release the, the chair. He'd float up maybe 100 feet, be up there a few minutes, and then come back down. When he wanted to come down, he'd just start shooting the balloons one at a time until he gently landed back on the earth. So they released him, and he went up, but he didn't go up 100 feet. He went up 11,000 feet, right into the traffic patterns of Los Angeles International Airport. For two hours, he was up there, shut down the runways at the airport, clogged up air traffic all over the United States and in parts of the world because planes could not get in and out of Los Angeles. Finally, they got him down. And uh, once he got to earth and he was sighted by the police, reporters gathered around him and they had some questions. Three of them were particularly interesting to me. One question was, were you scared? Yeah. Would you do it again? No. Well, why did you do it in the first place? And he said, well, you know, sometimes, sometimes you, you just have to do something. I thought of that as I was reading about the religious leaders and Jesus. I think that in their minds, their response to Jesus is simply their way of doing Something. Doing something about Jesus. These guys have been trained in the law all their lives. Jesus doesn't do anything the way the law tells them to do it. These guys have given themselves to following the letter of the law all their lives. And Jesus seems to flaunt his disregard for the law every time he can. These guys are respected members of society. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, blind guides, snakes, a brood of vipers. These guys are are the glue that holds together the, the fragile, volatile relationship between Rome and Jerusalem. And Jesus, with his words and actions, seems to undermine 
all the glue they keep putting on to this volatile relationship. These guys go to the places they're supposed to go to. They say the things they're supposed to say. They do the things they're supposed to do. They speak out against the moral ills of society that they believe is leading their society into a culture of secularism. And Jesus calls prostitutes and loan sharks his friends. And finally, I think the religious leaders decide we have to do something. Now, it's pretty easy for us with the benefit of time and perspective to sit here and condemn the religious leaders. I mean, are they really as bad as we have portrayed them? Isn't it possible they're just a little confused, a little mixed up, just a little off base, but not that bad? After all, who goes to the synagogue more than they do? Who knows the scriptures better than they do? Who, who follows the laws of God more carefully than they do? Who cares about the integrity of Israel's historic sacrificial system than they do? Who else but these guys are holding together the institution of Judaism? Maybe they're not so bad as we think they are. But Jesus calls them hypocrites. Because they don't live what they proclaim. They aren't really what they want people to believe they are. The word translated hypocrisy comes from the theater. It describes an actor who plays a role. Someone who disguises themselves in order to become a character on stage. The character is not really the person. No matter how much we might associate that person with a character. A hypocrite is a pretender. The opposite of a hypocrite is someone who is genuine. The death of Christ is not the beginning of their hypocrisy. It's the culmination of their hypocrisy that starts long before. In Matthew's gospel, he records the words of Jesus, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus says it's hypocrisy when, when you say that you honor God, but your hearts really aren't committed to God. It's hypocrisy when you give of your possessions, but you don't care about justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's hypocrisy when you care more about image than about character and integrity. In the early morning hours 
of Jesus' arrest, the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. And John 18, 28 says that then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. You see the irony of that? Here are these religious people condemning an innocent man to death. But what they're really concerned about is that they don't mess up their ritual purity so they can eat the most holy meal of the Jewish faith. Hypocrisy. And yet how often are we more concerned about rules and rituals and following expectations. And even as we do those things and care about those things, which can be important, at the same time, we are rejecting other people. We're ignoring people who are hurting, people who are less fortunate, people who are in need of grace and compassion. When rules and norms are more important than justice, we're hypocrites. When, we know, when what we know doesn't affect how we live, we're hypocrites. When we go to church and yet spew out bitter and hateful words, we're hypocrites. When we're absorbed in our ministry and yet trample other people when their ministry infringes on ours, we are hypocrites. Carl Armani says many Christians define sin as the sum total of acts which they themselves do not commit. We love to talk about the sins that other people struggle with. And we tend to not have a great deal of compassion for the sins that we don't struggle with. And that's hypocrisy. In the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel, we read Jesus is hanging on the cross and the religious leaders talk to one another, of course, in the earshot of Jesus. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. You know, if they really cared about God, if they were really in tune to the things of God, even with their enemy hanging on the cross and suffering, they would feel sorrow and compassion, not taunts and jeers. I wonder how many times we have rejoiced about the pain that our enemies have suffered. Even when people are justly punished, it ought to break our hearts. We ought to be filled with compassion that the person has to go through that punishment. Not cheer and rejoice because of what they're facing. Maxwell Perkins says, one of my deepest convictions is that the terrible harms done in this world are not done by evil people, but by good people who believe that they are right and that nothing can change that. Hypocrisy is dangerous because of what it does for us does to us and in us, but it's also dangerous because of the witness 
of what it says to other people, of how it distorts the true character of God. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Rick Warren says there there are two reasons why people are not open to Jesus. One of them is that they've never met a Christian. And the other is they've met a Christian. I suspect that whatever interest you have in God has in some way been influenced by people you have known or know. People of, other people of God who have treated you with kindness and compassion when they could have just as easily rejected you. People of God who have been kind to you, who have loved you, who have gone the extra mile for you. The people of God who you look at them and think, that's the kind of life I wish I had. But I also suspect that any negative feelings we have about God and about God's people in the church probably have something to do with people we've known and know as well. People who have rejected us when we were yearning for acceptance. People who have pushed us away when we needed an embrace. People with whom we have felt judged instead of loved. It's so easy to happen because it, it happens all the time. I remember my, my sixth grade gym teacher, Mr. Garland. He also taught a health and safety class on alternate days. And I remember him so clearly for a couple of reasons. One is, I think it might have been in fifth grade. He, he had a cartilage removed from his knee. And when he came back from the surgery, he brought to class the cartilage in a little jar of formaldehyde. And we thought that was pretty cool. A little gross, but pretty cool. And I remember that. And I remember that in sixth grade, in health and safety class, I, I received from him the only F that I've ever gotten on a report card. Now, I'm, I probably deserved other Fs, but that's the only one on my permanent record. It was, uh, we had one test during the whole semester it was a six-question test on first aid. And I had missed the class before, so I didn't, because of band, and I didn't know we were having the test, and I got there, and I didn't have a clue. And I failed the test, so I failed the class. You might want to keep that in mind if you're in the middle of an emergency and wondering, who should I call? I might not be the first person you want to turn to since I failed first aid. It was at that point that I also realized my medical career was probably not going to take off in other directions. But what I also remember him for is, is in sixth grade, our class, our health and safety class, met in the home ec room. And the first day of class, you know, teachers always going through rules. And, of course, when you meet in the home ec room, you have different rules than you do in the other classroom. Don't turn on the stoves. Don't stuff anybody in the oven. Don't mess with the sewing machines. You know, those kinds of things you have to tell sixth grade boys. One of the most important rules was don't use the west door. There were two doors in this big room, one on the east end of the room, one on the west end of the room. And the, the west end door went through, some, went through a little tiny, had a little tiny hallway with lots of fragile stuff there. And said, don't use that. It's important. You do not use that doorway. So first day of class, bell rings. We all get up, start walking east and look back. And Mr. Garland's going right out the west door. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? So we went to him and complained and said, hey, I thought we weren't supposed to use that door. And he looked at this group of us and said, guys, do as I say, not as I do. 
I think that's the first time I ever heard that said. But more than 38 years later, I still remember his words. People remember. We remember. And just as we've been influenced positively or negatively by other people, we influence other people positively or negatively for Christ. And when we live lives of hypocrisy, it distorts the true image of who God is. And people get a false view of who God is. Our witness is so important. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this this strong pull to, to live hypocritical lives? Let me make a few suggestions. I think for one thing, we need to be honest about our own hypocrisy. Someone said the church only has two kinds of people, hypocrites and forgiven hypocrites. Probably true. We need to admit the truth of our own struggle. Now, the ultimate, it seems to me that the ultimate culmination of the religious leader's hypocrisy comes at the end of this passage you read this morning from John 19. Pilate keeps trying to toss Jesus back to them, and they keep pushing Jesus back. And finally, Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And they declare, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. I think that is one of the most chilling statements in all of Scripture. These are the religious people. These are the people who have committed their lives, everything about their lives, to supposedly following God. But when their backs are against the wall, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Reminiscent of what the people of Israel say to Samuel. We don't want God to be our king anymore. We want, a, we want a, a real king. And you and I are continually tempted to have other kings too. And we need to acknowledge that. What might we say? We have no king but sex. We have no king but education. We have no king but our political agenda. We have no king but power. We have no king but being accepted. We have no king but sports. We have no king but entertainment. We have no king but success. If it leads you to act as though Christ isn't important, it's a king. If it nudges you to be less generous about the kingdom of God, it's a king. If it causes you to rationalize missing the gathering together of God's people in public worship, it's a king. If it leads you to cause unnecessary pain to other people, to treat people in demeaning or patronizing way, it's a king. A king rules his people. And they obey. A king cares for his people and they trust him. A king conquers for his people and they fight. And a king blesses his people and they express their gratitude. So to what are you giving your obedience? Your trust, your energy, your gratitude. That's your king. And we need to acknowledge whatever that struggle is for us. It's 
leading us toward hypocrisy. But I think it's also important to, in the right setting to give other people permission to say things to us about our lives that we might not see ourselves. We become blinded to these things. Bill Hybels, who's a pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, one of the largest churches in America, tells about a time when he drove to the church one night to, to encourage and to pray with a, a group of people who were putting on a presentation that weekend. He, he drove up and decided, I'm just going to be in there a couple minutes. So he parked right up next to the doors, ran in, talked to them, prayed with them, ran back out, went home. And the next day, there was a note in his mailbox. And it was from one of the staff members. And it said, Bill, small thing, but last night when you came to rehearsal, you parked at the side of the lobby in the no parking area. And one of my crew, who didn't know it was you until you got out of the car, said to me, there's another jerk parking in the no parking area. We try hard not to allow people, even staff, to park anywhere other than parking lots. So I'd really appreciate your cooperation too. And then he signed it. I don't know if I would have signed that note, but... And Hybels, in telling the story, said, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but the staff member is no longer with us. He uh, came back from lunch late the next day, and, you know, sometimes you just have to get rid of people. But and he said, no. He said, he said, actually, he's with us, and his stock has gone way up in my book. Because he had the courage to write me about what could be a slippage in my character. He said, you know what I thought when I drove up there that night? I know I shouldn't park here. But after all, I am the pastor. I'm an exception. It's in those moments when we think we're exceptions, we need God to send us people to help us. Pilate tries to convince the religious leaders. Pilate, of all people, is saying to them, do you realize what you're doing? Are you sure you want to do this? But they don't want to hear it. And our unwillingness to hear from other people creates a breeding ground for hypocrisy. But ultimately, we have to confess that only God can change us. We have our agenda. We think we can handle it ourselves. We can't. Often our hypocrisy is about control. We want to control our lives. We want to keep thinking that we're able to bring the solution that we want to bring because God's solution seems a little uncomfortable and a little risky. I think I'll just work at my own. It's not going to happen without God's help. Ultimately, the answer to our struggle is the cross. Our surrender to the cross. The cross not only uh, exposes our sin, but it's the answer to our sin. The cross is God's plan for redeeming us from the hypocrisy toward which all of us are tempted. The cross reminds us of what God has done for us and that we need his help to overcome. And the cross, the shadow of the cross always falls on the table of our Lord. It's at this table that we acknowledge that without God, we are dead in our hypocritical sins. We are lost in the waves of our hypocritical self-centeredness. We are abandoned to our hypocritical arrogance. But as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are reminded that 
why Christ died. Because of our sin and because of God's love. We're reminded that God has more for us. And that he opens the door for a transformation through Christ. So in the grace of Christ and through the death of his son and the grace of God and the death of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, let's open our hearts and receive his wondrous transformation. Please bow your heads with me for a moment of silent prayer. Please join me, join with me in the prayer of confession printed in your bulletin. Dear Heavenly Father, it's difficult for us to admit, but we must acknowledge our struggle to live as you have called us to live. Though you have created us in love, We have chosen paths of hate and vengeance. Though you have sent your Son to redeem us, we have turned to fleeting experiences of self-promotion. Though you have offered us freedom from the bondage of sin, we have too often chosen the way of self that keeps us chained to all that defeats us. Father, in your unlimited grace, give us strength to turn from self-centeredness to self-sacrifice from the need to control to a willingness to surrender, from a spirit of greed to a spirit that overflows in generosity, from doubt to faith, from perceiving life as wrapped around ourselves to understanding true life as only in you. For your gracious mercy and tender love, we give you thanks as we seek the forgiveness you have promised to all who repent and believe. Amen.